thing and welcome to the price of fame my name is lunga chuka and i'll be your host tonight ladies and gentlemen creeping through the grass four time sadmc champion western cape regional champion in the house also that as dj of the decade the legend the living legend award winning dj in the house ladies and gentlemen please make some noise and welcome to the screen grand master ready deep <laughs> hey, DJ, 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 hey man, good evening, man. Good evening to all of your viewers. <laughs> I, I like so, the intro, so, man. Big ups to you. Dig it. <laughs> give thanks. Yeah, I'm awesome. trying to. I'm trying to send in my CV there. Hey, maybe you can get <laughs> please, please do. Please do. We can definitely um, do awesome boom bap track. You know, we can turn that. Yeah, oh, that oh, boom bap track. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Definitely, and I know you kill it on that style, you know. Um, <laughs> all right, ladies and gentlemen, we have the Grand Master Ready D in the in the house. When I started the show, you were one of the people that was on the list immediately. I was like, I have to have the Grand Master wow. on this because um, I know, I, like, I've seen, I've seen your, I've seen parts of your highlights of your journey growing up, you know, seeing you on TV and then all of that stuff. But obviously in the gaps you have, obviously things that you've done. So we're going to get into all of that tonight. Sure. Um, wow. You have paved the way for so many of us, not just like for DJs. Um, you've done a lot with your skill in hip hop alone. Um, how has 2021 been treating you so far? Um, so far, 2021, it's definitely been a better year than 2020, no doubt. Um, yes. It's not exactly where we wish for it to be from, let's say, more from a financial side of things, you know? Yeah. Um, but in terms of the amount of time that we managed to spend with family, especially, I think I'm, I'm grateful for that. Because prior yeah. to this pandemic, you know, I lived past my family. Although we stayed in the same house, it's just I had such a busy yeah. schedule. So with the yeah. pandemic and lockdown and all these things, it kind of slowed down things for me on, on, on one end. And then on the other end, you have to find resourceful and creative ways, you know, to keep busy and to put yourself out there and, you know, to keep your viewers, your fans and your supporters, you know, keep them up to date and entertained. Yes, that's very true. That's what I'm doing right now, you know. Um, I mean, like... Um, when the lockdown hit in the beginning, I first thought, you know, I'm just going to wait it out. It's probably going to be a month or two, you know, because I had plans, I mean, you know. Like, I'm yeah. not going to take it too seriously, you know. These things happen, you know, come and go, you know, just wait it out. But like uh, like you said, it's been unpredictable, you know. We don't know what's happening and we have to find other ways. We have to adapt, you know, and find other ways to put yourself out there, keep your fans and keep your audience also still motivated with the way that you usually do things, but just on a different platform, Oh, absolutely that's um, super, cool. super super cool all right so i want to take it all the way back all all the way back to the sure. little kid <laughs> the little kid Dion, before you even heard about hip-hop and um i i think like i think I, I heard once in an interview 
Uh, I think it was on Jam Alley. No, 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 no. I'm interview. Like, I think you used to be long to a crew called Pop Glide. No, Is that true? Pro Prophets of the City. Oh, Prophets of the City. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yes, yeah, you on Jam yeah. Alley. I remember there was an oh, episode. Actually, actually, before Prophets of the City, um, I belonged to a B-boy crew called the Ballastic Rockers. The Ballastic Rockers kind of evolved into Prophets of the City. But prior to Bal Ballastic Rockers, um, the crew was called the City Kids. And Pop Glide crew, oh. they used to be, um, uh, yeah, they used to be amongst the adversaries, the crews that we used to battle from time to time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's crazy. Okay. So take us, take us back to the moment, like when you first uh, got introduced to hip hop, who opened the door for you? How did you stumble across it? And how did you start? And how did you become the grandmaster? Wow. Wow. Sure. That's, that's definitely a journey, a, eh? That's a long journey, man. Even if I sit back and think now, I'm like, holy Lord, did you actually <laughs> take that journey? Did you do these things? And the only yeah. thing that reminds me is when I bump into people and they remind me, and when I look back into my boxes and I see all my accreditation cards going all the way back to the 80s, and I'm like, holy Lord, you've been a busy guy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you but just keep going, man. Right? Um, yeah, man. So I was... I was um, born and raised actually born in Lansdowne and raised in district six because my parents lived in district six though so i was born in my aunt's house so district six um the community was always driven by music so thankfully because of that i was exposed to so many different sounds and fortunately yeah. my dad had a record player in the house and when i came across hip-hop i could immediately relate to that piece of gear Unfortunately, I lost my dad just about a year before we were forcefully kicked out of District 6 due to the previous apartheid government's Group Areas Act. But just yes. before our removal from the area, my sister, she's uh, four years older than me. And of course, at that time, she was a teenager. And she had um, friends that were like really cool homies. You know, they were the trendsetters of their era. And one Saturday, I, I remember that clearly, man, they rolled up in front of a house in Upper Shepherd Street, District 6, in the red and white 63 Impala. And I'm not telling you a word of a lie. The original, legit Chevy Impala that all the rappers are losing their minds over. They had one of those. They flipped the boot open. They took out this little portable turntable with a whole batch of vinyls because they used to work on, on C. And they used to do all these travels abroad with their work. And they came back from the U.S. Um, and they came back with all these this records. And the first hip-hop song that I heard was Rapper's Delight by Sugar Hill Gang. That afternoon when I put that uh, record on the deck, dropped that needle on the record, man, and I could relate to the song, number one, the music. I remember the music because uh, Rapper's Delight samples um, a band called Chicks, a disco hit called Good Times, so that baseline, doom, 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 do do doom, doom. You know, I could, I could relate to that. That, that first yeah. uh, drew me in, and then I heard these guys rhyming. And I was like, but this sounds very familiar, because as a kid, yeah. we were always rhyming. And, you know, mm -hmm. um, we were always having jokes in rhyme form, and we were always speaking in a rhythmic pattern. So that was yeah. the first uh, hip-hop song I was introduced to. And in that same pile of... Um, vinyl they had a, a record by an artist called curtis blow who later 
um, became known as Run DMC's manager. So one of the big songs in there was a song called The Breaks. And everything they were talking about, you know, it was all aspirational stuff. They were talking about color TVs and swimming pools. And I was like, holy Lord, if only one day I could have a color TV and a swimming pool <laughs> and a cool car like that, you know, yeah. then, then, then I would have made it in life. So that was my introduction to hip hop music. Wow. That's, that's really cool because like, um, I was going to speak about actually about the music because like with the music, you like with, well, if people look at hip hop, you know, if just from an outside perspective and they like to see what they see on mainstream, they would probably see just gangster rap, you know, and um, there are so many different versions of rap music in hip hop. Like, I mean, we, we, we had the um, WA we had a completely different direction. I'm talking about police brutality against young black um, kids in the hood. Um, then we had gangster rap as well. We also had storytelling, like you said now, where they're speaking about colorful TVs and all of that. And sometimes it was funny stories, you know, where they're speaking about macking on a girl or something like that. So there's all those genres, you know. And it's yeah. actually cool to hear that you came from, you, you started from that influence. Um, so you say Curtis Blow was your, like, and, and those people who was actually popping at the time when you started. Man, at that time, there was no hip hop. It was foreign oh. to everybody. Hip hop was foreign to everybody in this country, as far as I know. When hip hop started to be, to to surface, it was practically in 1980, 81, 81, 82. Yeah, we were then moved to Mitchell's Plain. And as a kid growing up in Mitchell's Plain and a typical kid on the Cape Flats, you know, we used to watch these Kung Fu movies and we used to yeah. try all these things, you know, that we see in the movies and the backflips and pretend that we were silver fox flying through the air and we used to make our own moon chucks with my mom's brooms and stuff and always <laughs> land up in trouble for doing stuff like that. So yes. a friend of mine who was a popular DJ in Cape Town, DJ Rosano X, his parents had a video recorder. And he recorded this music video that came on TV once. And in this video, there was kids doing these gymnastic movements in the video. And I was like, holy crap, this is like dope on another level. Number one, I could relate to um, the kids because they look like kids in our neighborhood. The yeah. song was a song titled Buffalo Girls by an avant-garde musician from the UK that went to New York to kind of capture the trends in New York. And he recorded yeah. this album and he did some work with local DJs from New York. And in his music video, he actually had um, B-Boy or Breaking Pioneers, the Rocksteady Crew, New York City Breakers. Um, he had these kids dressed up in these oversized clothing with painted faces, um, these weird hats and doing this very um, unusual dance. All of that blew my mind. And I, then I saw DJs scratching on the decks. I couldn't understand it, but I remembered I grew up with a, with a turntable. My dad had one. And once again, I'm drawn in. And we started doing this dance, thinking it was a new gymnastics to a strange kind of music. And about two years yeah. later, we only learned, because it started to pick up in the mainstream media, that this thing is called um, break dancing, and it's a part of something called hip hop. And remember that time yeah. we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have internet, there was no computers, none of that type of things. So we had to um, practically depend on the mainstream media to feed us the information. Yeah. And then um, Michael Jackson was actually the craze at that time. He did um, 
Billie Jean. Um, he did his uh, the album uh, Off the Wall. I think Billie Jean was the song. Um, no, I think Billie Jean was on the second album. And that's when Michael Jackson just completely blew up, you know, in, in our areas throughout Cape Town. And then they had this Michael Jackson competition in Mitchell's Plain Town Center. That was like the central shopping location for the whole of yeah. Mitchell's Plain at the time. So they had this, this Michael Jackson competition and then myself, um, another kid known as Hoha, he became known as the granddad of graffiti art in South Africa. Myself, Hoha and DJ Razano, we formed this three-man crew called the City Kids. And here yeah. we are rocking up to this Michael Jackson competition, not looking like Michael Jackson, not dancing <laughs> like Michael Jackson. And we started doing this gymnastics to this really weird music. We found a very interesting song in one of the record stores on the vinyl. And we thought, let's just dance to this because it sounds like this dance should be done to this music. Yeah. And thankfully, we won the competition. Um, there was talent scouts from a local nightclub and um, watching the, the contest. They reached out to us and we became the resident dancers at this club called Club Fantasy in Mitchell's Plain Town Center. And wow. More competitions popped up. We started to discover that there was more breaking elsewhere in Cape Town City. And then the dance competition started to happen. And that's when we managed to, to battle and interact with um, more uh, b-boys, you know, in, in the scene or more breakers in the scene. And this is how we came across the Pop Glad crew, people like um, um, Emil from Black Noise. And, yes. you know, that was the type of interactions and a lot of the a lot of the music wasn't really freely available, and how we received the music was um, through one of our members. That um, he had to go. In fact, he chose to go back to the UK because of the apartheid policy. Back then, uh, young white men it was um, it was um, it was their duty and obligation to join the military forces, and he didn't want yeah. to do that. You know go to the military, then come back and then get um, sent off into the townships and then, you know, start freaking harassing, assaulting, you know, people of color. And he wasn't down with that whole thing. So with him being located in the UK, he used to send me cassette tapes all the time. And we had so many other friends who had family, relatives, pen pals, um, also living somewhere else in the world, in the US, in the UK. And this is how the music came in. And we used to do a lot of exchanges of mixtapes and that's practically how the hip-hop music started to spread out um in cape town city as far as i know yeah so that was wow. just a little bit you know of the beginning days yeah yeah that's crazy because like i know you you play a huge role in terms of like the influence of the hip-hop culture in south africa you know and in cape town also like um there's a lot of things that you started, you know, we've heard from you first and um, you're, you're part of the first front runners, like you say, you know, and it's actually very interesting to hear how you actually got to actually share the music. I actually got to get the music through tapes and all of the, uh, like, wow, like things are so easy right now. Like it's so hard to actually and imagine that. I'm telling you, when <laughs> I, and, and the only way of communication was a letter. I had to wait for a letter to get sent. Because making yeah. a phone call at the time was just that that was impossible to do, you know. And then my friend used to send me a letter first. This is DJ Aski. And he was the white guy living in the UK. He sent me a letter first to say, D, expect the tape at the end of the month, at least the end of every single month. I promise yeah. you, man, when that tape 
arrived in that little brown envelope, my Lord, it's like the heavens opened. You know, it's like heaven yeah. opened. You pull that tape out, you pop it into the cassette deck, and you know you're the only person on this continent that's got these yeah. songs, these beats, you know. There's nobody else. I, I yeah. knew that for a fact because of the music that he sourced, the independent yes. record labels and, and the types of artists that he chased at the time, you know, so we knew um, what we had was practically solid gold. And I still have most of those tapes to, to this day. Still in wow. condition, I still have them to this day. So, so that was kind of the experience, you know, so now you being exposed to artists like um, Schoolie D, um, she was, uh, there's so many busy B, Man, I'm taking you back to artists that were around in the 70s that started to record in the 80s. And this was just after Rapper's Delight um, with the Sugar Gang yeah. and Curtis Glow. And then it was the arrival of Public Enemy and LL Cool J and Run DMC. And that is when hip-hop started to sound different, look different. The attitudes were different, the beats and yes. all those. So that was like a, a transitional point um, for hip-hop music at the time. So thankfully... You know, we had friends like that that could keep us updated and keep us, you know, looking and sounding fresh. And he used to send us a lot of hip-hop magazines as well and urban magazines from the UK. And that's also how we managed to keep up with the yeah. trends. And, of course, that was all inspiration for us, you know. Yeah. Um, can you take us through the transition from Prophets of the City and you breaking away? Because was it was your name Ready D when you were with Prophets of the City, or did you go under a different name when you were Prophet, when you were with Prophets of the City? And how did you become yeah, so, Ready D? So, yes, the story with Ready D, right? Um, being, I'll just say, being active in hip hop as a mobile DJ, that was the one thing. I started doing graffiti art as well, um, b-boying or breaking or break dancing. That was kind of like our core thing. And we did a little bit of emceeing as well at the time, you know, but it was nothing serious. It was just amongst yeah. the homies and to entertain people at home, you know, when we had these house parties, it was that type of thing. Yes. So I was always the guy that would suggest to always be the hypest guy in the crew. So whenever there was opportunity to dance or to battle crews, I was like, guys, let's go, let's go. And they always just uh, say, slow down, you're always ready. Why don't you just calm down for a second? We're not ready. And I'm like, no, guys, come, let's go. We've got to go here. We've got to go there. We've got to jump on a train. We've got to, you know, jump fences and try and gate crash wherever we possibly could just to go and dance and throw down. So that's practically how the name Ready came about. So I dropped my, 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 my hip-hop name of the era, which was um, Kid Strut because of a, of a, a, of a kind of like a strutting popping movement that we used to do when we used to dance. So I dropped yeah. that name and it became Ready. And D was, of course, the first letter of the name that my mom gave me, which is Dion. So that was Ready D. And within Prophets of the City, um, how Prophets of the City came to be was um, practically through our journeys and our battles that used to happen in the city center. So we used to jump on a train early in the morning on a Saturday to go and battle cruise, um, you know, on Cape Town Station, on the Grand Parade, in St. George's Mall. And I'm talking, this is during the days of apartheid. So we used to get yeah. chased by cops and security, you know, from one location to the next. And eventually, a group of friends of ours introduced us to this punk rock club that used to be right opposite um, the castle in Harrington Street. 
And that club was called Club Teasers, and it's got nothing to do with the strip joint. I'm always telling people this, <laughs> but nothing to do with the strip joint. So yeah. this venue was called Club Teasers, and it was known for, you know, um, rock and reggae, and it was a pretty liberal setting. Yeah. Um, to cut a very long story short, um, we ended up breaking in the club. We got like a five-minute spot. The five minutes became 10 minutes. The club owner um, liked the fact that we were starting to bring, we started bringing a lot of people, you know, to the to the uh, to the matinee sessions. This was happening in the matinees. It started to grow. We were then allowed to get onto the decks and play our music, you know, while uh, we were having these breaking sessions. And yeah. as uh, time went on, we started to have these rap battles and open mic sessions, and kids would come from all over Cape Town. It was Mitchell's Plain, Elsis River. Ocean View, it was Langa, it was Googs, you name it, everybody was in the building. And this was actually the first time that we interacted with white kids, believe it or not. And yeah. prior to that, I was always intimidated by white people, you know, always intimidated and fearful of white people. But um, then there was this one kid that was really, really skillful. He was just freaking off the chain with his lyrics for the time. And I could tell he was heavily inspired and influenced by LL Cool J and Rakim because of his technical rhyme style. And, you know, he would always slaughter everybody in the battles. And then yeah. I, I heard through a mutual friend that his dad actually owns a recording studio. And then the flashlight or the bulb, you know, went bright, boom. And I was like, damn, rappers delight, swimming pools, cars, girls, money. Oh, that yeah. that's the home. I need to become homies with this guy. And yeah. it just so happened that this this kid, he didn't believe that I could scratch or do any form of turntablism because the DJ box was out of sight from the from the audience, the crowd. They couldn't really see what the DJs were doing. So all the scratching yeah. and the way we flipped the beats, then um, people sometimes thought it was that's just the way that the music was recorded. He yeah. needed convincing. He then, um, after the club one afternoon, um, he came to my house and I did a scratch demo for him. And of course, I spoke to him, hustled him to speak to his dad. He went back, spoke to his dad. His dad said, send me a demo. Um, I did a, a demo on a cassette tape, sent it through. Thankfully, his dad's partner was based in the UK for a very, very long time. So he could relate to what it is that I was doing on that demo. Yeah. And he immediately said, guys, we need to bring this guy into the studio. And at that time, I started to compete in the DJ championships as well. So I won my first um, DMC championship in 89. And that's when we started to go into the recording studio. So there wasn't profits of the city, really. You know, my mind was like money and cars and girls. That was my mind because I'm a typical guy, young kid from Mitchell's plane, you know, my mind wasn't on anything else. And yeah. then I didn't know that this kid was on the SRC, man, and he was like heavily um, involved with politics and all these things. So this kid is freaking talking about Mandela and Steve Biko and the state of emergencies and it's riots going on. And he's all on that vibe. And I'm like, guy, you're not seeing the vision over here. Let me be in swimming pools, guy. Focus, focus. And he's like, no. Amanda. And I'm like, I don't understand this Amanda business that's going on over here. Yeah. And, you know, because, you know, that, that's how I was introduced to the music. And, and that was the one thing that was on my mind because I lost my dad 
my mom was a single parent. I was hanging out with the wrong crowd at the time as well. So I had a diff I had different influences at the time. So my motives were different as well. But to yeah. cut the long story short, we were sitting in um, in the recording studio one night looking for beats to sample. He then took out one of his dad's jazz records, which was a, a, a record by Abdullah Ibrahim. Played Abdullah Ibrahim and that's when everything changed for me right there and then. I became serious about writing lyrics, thinking about my circumstances. And we wrote our first song called The Boxburg Blues, which was quite a political song for that time. And we were sitting still wondering how are we actually going to move forward with a hip hop crew? Is it just the two of us? I suggested to him, look, I come from a, a breaking crew called the Ballastic Rockers. And I feel we need to put together a hip hop crew, not a rap crew. So I told him, look, one of our homies is Jasmo. He can do the human beatboxing. Um, he knew of Jasmo because Jasmo used to be in the club beatboxing. And I was like, okay, cool, I'm down. Beatboxing plus Jasmo can pop and lock. And I told him, well, we need to bring in Ramon as well, you know, because he was one of the dopest dancers at the time. And then that yeah. was it. The crew, the crew was full. So we started off as a, as a four-man crew and we needed to come up with a name. And then, you know, with all the writing, all these lyrics and becoming more conscious and seeing our communities burn and suffer and being harassed by the military police and, you know, and, you know, with all those things happening around politics in, during that time. And also the music we were listening to, I told him, man, how about calling ourselves prophets of the city? And he was like, Wow. That's actually a really cool name. Let's go for it. And I was like, not because we prophets. It's just us being influenced by all of those that have come before us. And the yes. name is also there to celebrate those teachers, you know, from all those generations going back hundreds, thousands of years, all those that have made a positive impact on humanity. The name was practically celebrating those um, those greats that came before us. That's actually what the name stands for on a very basic yeah. philosophical level. And that was the birth of Prophets of the City right there. So I was still ready D. I was still DJing. Um, we started producing. I learned my production skills from him and his dad. This is Shaheen, who became the lead rapper in Prophets of the City. So our crew was like full blown. It was a hip hop crew. We had everything in there. Crap artists, DJs, turntablism, poppers, lockers, you name it. It was all about hip-hop at the time, yeah. That was cool. And and for how long was Prophets of the City around doing the thing? Prophets of the City went flat out all the way through to around about 2005, 2006, if my memory serves me correct. And yeah. it just happened that things started to happen in the, the, the group officially have not disbanded. So technically, Prophets of the City still exist. Because whenever, okay. the, you know, we get the call to perform, we had a reunion quite a few uh -huh. years ago at the Cape Town Jazz Festival. That was our first um, performance together after 15 years. Um, prior to yeah. that, we would always fly into different countries to do certain performances our last big performances was in Chicago in the USA. And we spent a lot of time abroad as well, especially in, um, 
94, after Mandela was released, you know, the country went through turmoil. We were banned on, on quite a few occasions. We managed to get a record deal in the UK. In 95, we were based in the UK. We released um, Universal Soldiers, um, our fifth album in the UK, and we scooped up so many awards. So we were traveling, you know, throughout the UK, throughout Europe, um, traveling and performing with people like the Fugees, with Public Enemy, you name it, uh, Lauren Hill, Chivas, the list goes on, Africa Mambata and the Soul Sonic Force, Showbiz AG, Ice-T, all these oh. people, you know. So we won, the, we won the festival circuit at the time. And when yeah. we came back to South Africa, Kwaito blew up. We then started a label um, with our manager at the time called Ghetto Rough Records. And then we started to produce for quite a few Kwaito artists at the time. And during that time, we then formed a crew called, in fact, I formed another collective called Brasa Fanikap because I just felt I wanted to use the dialect, the way we spoke it. I wanted that more, um, I wanted full-length albums to, to be recorded, you know, in Afrikaans and the way that we use it because Prophets of the City used to have one or two songs on the album. And in fact, I uh, just got to share this with you. So the first Vanak was Prophets of the City. First Afrikaans hip hop was Prophets of the City. So there was a lot of firsts on our journeys as well. We met ah. Ishal and Junior. We had songs such as uh, Zulu Muffin, Understand Where I'm Coming From. If you go back onto those albums, you'll actually hear the first Vanak on those albums as well. So you can trace a lot yeah. of that history, you know, through, um, through those works as well. Then with uh, Brasa Fani Kap, um, they started to blow up and do very, very well. So I spent a lot of time with Brasa Fani Kap. Shaheen spent a lot of time on his studies. Um, Kwaito blew up. All the artists that we were busy working with, you know, so there was a lot of other things that kind of kept us um, distracted from profits of the city, you know, and then life takes its um, course. And that was kind of the journey. And during that time, I entered more championships, won more championship titles, started to get more bookings as a solo performer, as a DJ. Um, we were then based in, in Joburg for a long time. And I think where I found my breakthrough moment, if you want to call it, in the mainstream arena, was with the Fat Joe show. Fat Joe picked up on me. I became the resident yes. DJ for the Fat Joe show. And ever since then, you know, things just blew up um, because yeah. of that TV show. Many, many years later, I did another TV show called Deck Tales, uh, DJ Ready D's Deck Tales. And I think that helped as well. And then I managed to land on TV with more shows because I'm also passionate about cars and motorsport and, you know, all the crazy things that goes on with cars and yeah. motorcycles. So we did them Zanzi rides. And I think, you know, yeah. all of those things kind of helped to, to, to boost the profile as well. Definitely. I remember, um, I remember the Fat Joe show. I think that's the first time, the very first time I saw you. And I remember my sister told me we were, she's like, that's DJ Reddy D. And he's the number one in the world. And all of that, wow. I was like, what? Yeah. And I was like, okay, okay. So I was like, that's when I first took you seriously because I was like, wow, and he's South African. And like, wow, it's actually the first time I met you, I took you seriously immediately because she, that's how she introduced me. She's like, that's DJ Reddy and he's like number one in the world. And like, you've been racking up so many titles. I mean, like you, I don't know, do, do DJs quiver when they see you walking to the, <laughs> into the competition? <laughs> How was the competition yeah. been for you, like, um, back then when you used to enter, when you were, like, ready and, and like, all, like, fired up? How was the competition back then? 
you know, back then, the thing that drew me to the competition was the, the prizes, nothing else. It wasn't ego. It wasn't anything to build a status. I didn't even think of building a brand. I didn't know what the outcomes, I didn't know what was waiting for me down the line. My mom yeah. couldn't afford to buy me turntables. I, my first two championships that I won, I didn't even own proper DJ equipment. I had a wooden box that served as a turntable. And everything that I made was all homemade stuff. And I used to cut up little cloth and things and just modify. I couldn't even afford headphones and none of these things. You know, so wow. I could make do with what I had. And thankfully, one of the guys in our B-Boy crew, he had decks. So I had to take a train, man, and come home late at night and risk getting locked up and risk getting chased by gangs, you know, at the time because it was a very, very rough era, you know, to, to, to grow up in at that time. So I had to make do with all of those things. And the thing that that really drew me or at least that motivated me is I need that equipment. I want that equipment. I'm going to do whatever it takes just so I can win the turntable. I need year two. I want a mixer. Year three, it was the whole setup. Year four, it was even a better setup. You know, so I was like, guy, that's what I need to do. And, and by any means, I'm going to freaking just go for it, you know. And at the time that... Yeah. um that I entered these competitions, remember, hip-hop still wasn't mainstream. Many people didn't even know what hip-hop was. They didn't even know what the music was called. They didn't even know, you know, um, it was even linked to a culture at the time. Some DJs played your Rapper's Delights and your Curtis Blows in the club, but they didn't know this was a part of, of a culture and a movement that's going to dominate the planet. I didn't even know it was going to blow up that big. But, I mean, it was just... Um, I would say it was a need that, that pushed yeah. me into, into the competitions. So people have never, ever in their lives seen anything like a performance that I did, um, you know, as far as DJing go. Because I used to take all my b-boy skills. I used to stand on my head and mix upside down, you know, my head's on the floor. My legs are coming over onto the decks and I'm manipulating the faders. I'm putting my legs over the turntables and my arms are all over the place. I'm on yes. the mic, I'm rapping, I'm scratching, I'm juggling. So that was completely unheard of. It was like a freaking alien that came down to earth for most of, most of these DJs. You know, yeah. and for me, I was just doing what I knew how to do. I never knew anything else. That was just, you yeah. know, me. And I just knew it. I need those decks. I need those prizes. <laughs> that was yeah. it, man. That's so awesome. I mean, like, just to picture everything, like, to put everything into place and, like, wow, like, to just see how it all started for you. It's really, really amazing. And I remember seeing you the first time live, and I saw you do those things, scratching with your nose. I was like, what is he scratching with his nose? <laughs> Elbows. Oh, yeah. He's putting, what, what? I don't know, whatever. Behind awkward positions. And it's not even, it's like, it's not, you know, it's not just awkward position. You're actually doing it on beat and everything. It's like, wow, I'm calling this do it right now. I look weird. I look weird doing this. But like, you were doing it quickly and you are like beat juggling and everything. I was like, yeah, it was. Yeah, I've man. never seen anyone do it at that time. You know, um, people would like, just like, but like people, people's skills were like, the other DJ skills were like quite simple, you know, the beat juggling and just scratching. But like, you came with different styles of scratching with your shoe, take your shoe off, put your shoe on the deck while it's swimming. So that was, that was really, really dope. And um, yeah. it's actually, it's actually surprising to hear that you were, you were never really interested in the titles, you know, even though you racked up so many titles, you were more like, mm, what can I win here? That's actually going to 
put me on the next level, you know? And, um, and you were like doing DJing, you were doing your thing in the party times, you know, and things were really, really tough. And I believe, yeah. okay, you're, you're in your household, they were really um, supportive because that's where the spark hit, you know, where the, tur- where the, you know, the music and you experience a turntable and you experience music for the first time. But um, how was it like outside? How was, how was the community like, you know? Um, was it easy for you to maneuver and do your thing? Or did you have some challenges in the community? It was kind of like, for example, hey, on Thursdays, you know, you can't walk over the field because that's when the gangs do their thing or whatever, or you have to be in yeah. by nighttime because the cops are coming around because it's apartheid or you can't do this, you can't do that. Did you have any of those challenges? Can you share some of that with us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we you know, living in Mitchell's Plain, it was one of those townships, you know, that was and still is plagued by gang violence, you know. And during that era, um, you know, the, the the military and the cops were dispatched all over to set up checkpoints. You know, so with state of emergencies at the time as well, you had to be extremely cautious with where you go. Um, put that aside as well, as a kid growing up in that environment, you learn to become street smart. So you know how to move, when to move. Um, you know, a lot of the people that I used to hang out with, school friends, you know, became like serious gangbangers like hardcore, I'm talking about killers. They became killers. So, you know, hanging out with all these kids, you learn a lot mm-hmm. about the streets. You learn a lot about the gangs because it's just all over. So you kind of, you, you, you get that street education. The biggest challenge for me was when I started breaking or break dancing, you know, just for the lack of a better term, I started to break away from the friends that I used to move with at the time. And most of them thought that I was joining another gang. And they were set on killing me. Oh, Because I didn't hang out with them. I started to look different, walk different, talk different. And they thought something was up, you know. One day, I was practicing on a cardboard right opposite my mom's place, there's a big open patch, open concrete patch, and there's a school in front. I was busy practicing by myself on this cardboard box, you know, doing this, my break dancing, and they came down the road, and they they practically stepped to me. And they were like, oh, this is the nonsense you're busy with. Look at this guy, you know, like they say in, 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 in gangster lingo, you know, so to say, he's not a dude anymore. He's just, yeah. he's a nothing now. They said, nah, I lost the dung, you know. So I wasn't a tracksuit pants. I wasn't wearing the gangster, you know, the gangster uniforms no more. You know, the Nevadas, the Pringles, um, town talk caps, the Ray-Bans bent. You know, you had to have that whole freaking look. The Jack Bissells, the Converse All-Stars. That was kind of like, you know, the, 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 the gangbanger look back in the day. So I changed all yeah. of that. And since that day, they were actually comfortable seeing me doing something they didn't quite understand, but they knew I wasn't a part of the gang because we used to start dancing on the streets on such a regular basis. Other kids would come to my mom's house, come and practice in my mom's house. And because we were living in close proximity of each other, they practically saw all of those things. And they started to enjoy it, you know. And, um, you know, when we used to come back from from the, the... afternoon sessions at the club in the after uh, you know in the evenings coming back on the train there was times that i had to take a different route through other gang territories to get home 
because I couldn't take the shortcut straight from Lentegi Station and walk straight to, to where we live because I would meet them all on route, you know, and they would threaten us. And then we had yeah. to take detours, you know, practically risk going through other gang territories to get home. But until that day when they saw, you know, what I was busy with, that's the day I think that um, I was given another chance with life. That's crazy, man. Like, did you know that they were setting up for you to attack you or to take you out? Did you know all of this at the time? Or yeah, did they like point you and threaten you along the way and be like, hey, like, you know, did they like, or did you, or were you just shocked when they actually came and they saw you? I'm like, okay, now you're actually busy with something else, you know? Yeah, no, no, I, knew, they... I, I, I knew, you know, that they, they, there was, um, there was conflict waiting, you know, mm. I knew that. Because we were chased, you know, coming from the trains. And some of our yeah. friends were robbed and stabbed. And based on that, we had to take detours because they knew I was in that clique coming, um, coming home um, on, the, on the six o'clock train. And they knew exactly when that train would come in to the station and who's getting off that train. Because they used to rob people all the time, you know, getting on and off the trains all the time. And they knew who that clique was and, and wow. where we were coming from, you know. And uh, until until that day when they saw me breaking, man, that's when things started to, to to turn around. Yeah. Yeah. And when did you start traveling in your career? Was it with uh, was um, was Prophets of the City already, or before when you were a dancer? Yeah, my first travels as a dancer was in 1986, but it was local. And I think this was probably my first big break with Plastic Rockers, though. We ended up being in a major theater production called Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. This production went all over the country. And that's when we started to um, get a feel for touring. And when POC came along, we released our first album in 1990, it was. Um, we were lucky to meet Kaifa Semenya up in Joburg. He heard, you know, of this group and he heard of the African sounds that we were putting in hip hop music and him and Quincy Jones were practically joined at the hip, if you want to call it that. And he pledged to take a, a, a selection of bands over to the Montreux Jazz Festival. And thankfully, yeah. we were amongst those groups that went over to the Montreux Jazz Festival. So we spent a couple of months um, rehearsing um, in a studio up in Joburg with Kaifers, seeing all the other bands perform. And our first international trip then happened in, I think it was 90, could have been late 90, early 91. So we went to the Montreux Jazz Festival. That was our first encounters performing internationally with Quincy Jones being present as well. So that was a really mind-blowing experience. Ah. And then our second trip was to Swaziland. And that was uh, Jonathan Butler was on the ball. Joan Armitrading, she was huge at the time. And that was the first time that we performed to about 30,000 people that rocked up at that concert. I mean, that was completely freaking mind-blowing. It was crazy at the time. And yeah. ever since, you know, as we released albums, as we toured, we practically toured this whole country for a period of almost 10 years um, consistently and through these journeys um, you know we, we, we got onto all these bowls, all these gigs 
And in 94, after Mandela was released, we were banned. And then a crew from the UK came over and they performed in, um, in Yeovil. We met up with them. They were pretty hardcore, pretty raw and like very um, explicit, you know, on the political front. And we performed with him. We didn't know that they had an independent label in the UK. And we built the relationship. They flew back to the UK. About a month later, the call came, guys, we're going to sign you guys up in the UK. We're going to get distribution through um, Beggar's Banquet, which is one of the biggest distribution um, labels in the UK, or was at the time. And before you knew it, we packed our bags, based ourselves in the UK. And from there, we just ended up traveling all over UK, Western Europe, Eastern Europe. We performed in Eastern Europe before the Berlin Wall dropped. We were there. Um, our biggest fan base, believe it or not, was far north, all the way up in Norway. That was our biggest fan base, Norway. I mean, how's wow. that for irony? Yeah, that was crazy. Scotland, Ireland, you name it, Northern Ireland. We were in all those places, you know, for many, many years. That was our, our, our route. So Norway was feeling the music that you were producing at the time. hundred percent, hundred percent. And I think it was more, they, they felt the energy, although they didn't quite okay. understand what we were saying. Yeah. Because our, our, our showcase and our music was packed full of African elements and it yes. was heavily driven with social and political messages and the way we choreographed our movements, you know, Although it was hip hop, but there was a lot of Africa packed into our shows. And okay. I would say they, they, they loved it. You know, they loved the audacity. They loved the fact that they could see a different part of South Africa as well. Otherwise, it was wow. always the stereotypical images, Hector yeah. Peterson, and people would only think Soweto was South Africa. People would mistake me for being Mexican. They, were all, they all thought <laughs> I was Mexican. They th thought the other guys were Arabs. Until yeah, Ishmael Jr. Um, toured with us as well. And we ended up doing a lot of um, interviews, you know, practically speaking to journalists and speaking to the audiences and trying to tell them, you know, South Africa is a melting pot. There's so many different cultures. The mm -hmm. history is such a broad history. You know, you can um, trace it back um, to Asia, Malaysia. It goes throughout Africa, it goes into the U.S., um, you know, it's the coup, it's the sun, it's such a broad history. And people didn't quite understand that because that's not what the mainstream media gave them at the time. It was only Soweto that was building and it was only state of emergencies and armed forces killing the people. But it was, sure, I, would, I hate to do this, but it was only black people. So anything yeah. outside of a dark-skinned person didn't quite register with the international audience. That's why they were pretty yeah. stunned, you know. To see this this group of, of of guys on the stage and they're all looking different. There's a Mexican, there's an Arab, um, there's a black guy. Where in Africa yeah. are you from? There's another black guy, but you look different to that black guy. So you need to sit down and explain to them and kind of massage the intellect a little bit, you know, make them understand, you know, how diverse the history is and the culture and all these things. Yeah. I mean, like, who better than, than prophets of the city? Like you said, I mean, you had all of these different looking people, all also with different elements. I would say, like, or like you guys are like the Avengers of hip hop, you know? 
and wow. you would come together. I never thought of it that way. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely. If you put it together, like I'm just listening to the story. You guys are like really the Avengers of hip hop, and like you really gave them a good idea of what it looks and sounds like, and what it feels like. Different kind of energies from different people bringing through that. So, and I mean, in no way, probably majority of the people know one way or are the same, you know. And then yeah, you guys are so different. And you're doing so many different things, but you come together so beautifully. So I think that's also what was more beautiful than anything. Like they didn't have to understand what you were saying. Just seeing you and feeling you. Yeah, just experiencing you was enough, you know. So I get get it when you put it that way, that they were actually feeling. I think anyway would feel it, you know, if they were to see that about. And also the shows were so energetic, you know, everybody moved. The stage was busy. There was yeah. scratching. Then you find a guy flying through the air, coming over your head. This is the Ramon. Then there's popping and locking. Then there's breaking. And then you have the moment of silence. And then you have the history lesson. And then you have the protest. And then you have the music building up against. It was all these different elements and all this rawness of hip-hop culture all integrated into all these things. Um, there was nothing that looked and sounded like that Ever, I think. You know, many wow. crews came, but I'm not saying this to blow my own horn, but I've never, ever seen anything like Prophets of the City. Yes, we've been inspired and influenced by Public Enemy, um, definitely, in a big way, because of the militant stance. So a lot of that um, militant attitude and behavior came into our music, but with, that militant, uh, with being that militant, it was legitimate because we were genuinely affected by it back home and we were interacting with so many different people um, from different walks of life especially people of color that's been oppressed in the UK Native Americans that were on a tour trying to get back the crown feathers that were stolen from the tribes so you're hearing politics and how people are dealing with oppression from their perspective and all of that kind of make you understand what's actually going on in your own country. Because oppression is oppression. It doesn't matter where in the world you are. The motive is the same. The intentions are the same. All of those things. So all of those things help, you know, for us to understand what was actually going on. We tended protest. Um, we were marching in UK, you know, free Mandela, stop the oppression, all these things. So we were part of all of those things while traveling as well. And that also helped the growth and and and. And looking at international performances, it was totally incredible at the time. And, and, and that really, you know, started to filter into our stage presence as well. You know, just looking at um, the, the, the huge scale and how people would inflate that artistic personality when they're performing. So all of those things became a part of Prophets of the City's growth as 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 artists, as creatives, you know, during that era. Yeah, I'm so sorry about that. I don't know what just happened now. My internet just decided to have a bit of a snooze. <laughs> but I'm back now. I'm so sorry about that. But thank you for continuing what you were sharing with us. Um, actually, we're getting close to um, ending the interview soon. But it's just two more questions I really want to ask you. So with becoming the Grand Master, <laughs> how did you get that title? Like. Who was wow. it like? Who what, did you have mentors like who taught you along the way? Was there a grandmaster before you? And he's like, hmm, you are a very young 
and skilled man. <laughs> I've been watching you come up the ranks, and I now dub you the new Grandmaster. How did you become Grandmaster? Please share well, with us. Well, you know, America started to dish out Grandmasters, you know. So America had their first Grandmaster who was um, Grandmaster Flash, and then there was Grandmaster Theodore, and Grand Wizard, um, sure, I think it was Kaz or something. No, Grand Wizard, Theodore and Grandmaster Kaz and Grandmaster Flash. But Grandmaster Flash seems to be the most celebrated figure within hip hop because yes. of his contributions and him pioneering um, the culture and what they have done as a collective through the years. Um, anyway, fast forward, still in Joburg. I then get a call from Hype Magazine to come on board with the first few editions as a guest editor. And I knew nothing about publications and magazines and whatever, but I think they actually meant consultant. <laughs> but they decided, guy, hey, you're the guest editor. Anyway, here I'm sitting, giving advice and whatever. So the first few editions of Hype Magazine launches, I step out of the picture and Hype Magazine decides um, we actually um, need to do something to celebrate you, you know, for your contributions um, to the culture and the effect and the impact that you've had, you know, um, on, on um, the youth of South Africa. And the first Grandmaster title was actually given to me through Hype Magazine. And ever since, I think that created a further awareness of the journey and everything else um, that I was busy with, with Prophets of the City, I don't want to take the credit uh, for myself. There's so many people that helped me along the journey. DJ Ready D or Grandmaster Ready D has never, ever been a one-man show. There's a lot of people working behind the scenes and a lot of emotional support that I've received, you know, from my parents, my wife, my family, honest friends, you know, that didn't allow my ego to get out of control. So I've always been guided, you know, by, 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 by those people. And... You know, just being consistent, you know, as an artist and as a personality that's willing to grow and to work with others. I think all of those things collectively probably encouraged other entities to award me as well. And I'm, I'm truly grateful, you know, and I didn't expect it whatsoever. You know, um, I didn't call myself the Grandmaster. It's just based on the fact that, you know, so many people have agreed that um, I should get that title and I'm, I'm totally humbled by it. I think we all agree and you deserve it. I mean, listening to your story, like you, you've literally had experience, you've, you've paved the way and you shared the stage with so much um, legends that we look at legends today. We, had, we only maybe saw on TV or and you actually share the stage with them. You got to grow with them and be inspired by them. So I, I don't know. I don't know who else would be the grandmaster. It wasn't you, you know? <laughs> Well, and, you, and you are killing it. Now is my last, my last, last question. I want to take you into my time machine. And we're going to go all the way back. Way back. Back at the time. Back to the beginning when you started with the, when the passion hit you. When all of this. I want you to go back to that young Dion and telling him, like, now that you've walked through the path that you are, and now that you're grandmaster, you have one piece of advice that you have for him. I don't know what you're going to tell him about the journey or whatever to tell him. What, whatever you want to tell him, what would that a piece of advice be? I would tell him, you should stay in school. Don't bunk. Don't let your friends do your homework for you. 
and um, yeah, learn accounting and learn about money, how to make money, how to save money, how to spend money, and learn how to respect money, you know, because we're living in a time where if you don't have that resource, things become more challenging. So if only I had that education at a very young age, I think I would have been in a very different space right now because of the things that I still wish to do and so many of my dreams that I wish to fulfill, you know, when it comes to um, building projects and doing things um, with our communities as well and building all of these different um, entities that we could hopefully take across the world. So I would tell him definitely, Guy, um, uh, education, although it sounds cliche, but there's no shortcuts through life. And if you are able to, 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 to master that, you are actually going to, to, to get to where you need to be much quicker than the older um, DJ Ready Dion or the older Dion Daniels did. So I'm, still, I'm still grinding. I'm still learning. I'm still reaching yes. out. I'm still looking, you know, um, forward to meeting people that could hopefully, um, you know, be um, become a beacon that could become a guide. You know, I'm, I'm still on that path, you know, so I still feel I still have a long way to go on while I'm on this journey and on this earth. Yeah, no, that's very true. Wow. And that is a very powerful message, you know, and um I mean, it's not just a message that you would you would go back and teach you or the younger you. It's a message. It's something that we're still learning today. <laughs> you know, how to save money and how to do and how to budget and how to spend money and the importance of money, you know. And um, because these things are not being taught in our schools. And luckily that today we have something like Pocket Fin, actually the financial, the financial school of real life so they they do these things where they teach you about all of these um how to do investing budgeting and all of that stuff and it just teaches you make you more financially illiterate you know more financial literate sorry so that it don't exactly. add these mistakes and you stumble like most of us do you know i also need to learn a lot about that and i'm actually learning about that right now with pocket fence so yeah really day you you need it's to share that information with me man i'm definitely oh, on the path as well you i know, will I definitely come more and more effective in, 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 in how I deal with these things. You know, if you did, did if you don't, if you didn't receive that education, um, yeah, man, you think you're saving, but you're not really, you know, if you think you're spending, you, you always question yourself down the line, why did I do that? You know, and sometimes we are being overpowered and then we are burdened by our impulses as well. Unfortunately, yes. because of that ignorance and that lack and not, having access to all of the opportunities that we do now, especially from an educational standpoint, we're kind of in the position that we are right now. You know, so at this age, that's a huge part of, of, of my journey is to try to understand that as well. And like I said, there's so many things that I wish to accomplish and so many things that I wish to do as well. You know, and it's all in the name of trying to help our communities grow, especially young people, youth grow. And you can't do that if you don't have that knowledge you know and you don't have that sense of business and you don't have the networks and the contacts that can actually help you get from point a to point b you know so that's that's kind of where i'm at these days absolutely well that's also my focus now and pocket fun is definitely where we should like focus on 
I'm definitely awesome. going to share the links with you and get you interested Thank in you. that. Hopefully, you can also spread it further with your teams that you are trying to help out as well. Ready, D? Absolutely. It's been... Okay. <clears throat> Grandmaster! It's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure. You were... You, well, I really enjoyed um, speaking to you tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, please follow Ready, D on... Oh, okay, that's it. Follow Ready D on all his social networks, please. And let's make the entertainment industry one of the best supported by locals because local talent is liquor talent. Ready D, thank you so much for your time tonight. Um, I just want to tell you that um, I really enjoyed tonight and I'm sure most of our viewers also enjoyed tonight. You have an amazing story and it really puts things in place and to understand, okay, who you truly are and, you know, and there's so much you've been doing, you know, that people don't know when we learned about that tonight. So thank you so much. Thank you for being a guest tonight. You're welcome. And thank right. you so much for the for the opportunity. And I also want to say thank you to all of your viewers. And I just want to wish you all of the best, man. And may we get through this uh, pandemic in one piece. And may we become, uh, you know, better and more effective human beings down the line. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Didi. Enjoy the rest of your night. Thank you so much. Good night, sir. Good too. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That is it from the Grandmaster, and that is it from me. Please follow me on all my social platforms. That is on Facebook. You can catch me at Lunga Chuka the Energizer Funny. That is Lunga Chuka the Energizer Funny. And on Instagram, you can find me at Lunga Chuka. That is at Lunga Chuka. And also go, go over to YouTube and share this clip, share this interview with people that you haven't that hasn't seen it tonight, share, watch it again over. Please like and subscribe. We need the likes and the subscribers. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is it for me tonight. My name is Lunga Chuka. I've been your host. Good night. Mm -hmm.